You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. The revolution was on. When you hear the news, you're at table with your lesser chieftains. They're deep in their revelry beer foaming thick in their cups, meat steaming on the rough plank table. The messenger tells you quietly, Genaboom is fallen. The Carnutes have risen in revolt against Caesar. The news is welcome. For a long time, you've carried this fire in your belly, eating you from the inside. You've watched Caesar from far off, the black cloud gathering in the distance, the coming apocalypse. More and more refugees stream down from the north every year. You've heard their stories. Yet all around you, your people were asleep. You spoke up in the councils and they all dismissed you. You persuaded your father to the cause, but when he tried to rally the tribes to him, the other chieftains killed him. Now you're the chieftain of the Arverni, and when you hear this news, you're on your feet immediately, your voice booming out over their heads. How long will we sleep, you demand, while the enemy gathers its power? Will Caesar be inside our walls by the time we wake? It's a fine speech. It gets you kicked out of your city and stripped of your chieftainship. You set your back to your city and go out among the refugees because you are one of them now, stateless and cityless. They tell you stories of Caesar's atrocities. You recognize the fire that burns in their bellies, how like it is to yours. You seek out all those who harbor the sacred fire and you draw them to you. You remind them of what they are. Your people are great and epic. A proud, courageous culture of chariot warriors, champions of feats, veins brimming with the blood of heroes, children of a glorious lineage who dreamed of death in battle. You tell the refugees, don't forget what you are. Turn the fire in your bellies against the Roman hosts and there is no force on earth that will stop you. They gather around you, raise you up on their shields, and you ride toward your city with your misbegotten army at your back. For decades, your people have made peace with the Romans, allowed them to march their armies through your land and subjugate your own. Your people have forgotten what they are. You will go and remind them. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. This episode is a whole divided into three parts. In the first part, we talked about the start of the Gallic Wars, everything Caesar did for his first few years in Gaul. It ended when the Gallic chieftain Vercingetorix stepped onto the stage. This episode picks the story up from there. You're probably going to want to listen to part one of this series before listening to this one. This episode is also part of a larger arc about Caesar and the Gauls. At the very beginning, we follow Caesar's early career leading up to the Gallic Wars and talk about his reasons for going. Then we take a detour to tell you all about the Gauls in their own words, or as close as we can get, through a mixture of archaeology and Celtic mythology. With all that said, 
on with the story. Since 58 BC, Julius Caesar has been on a rampage in northern Gaul. He shattered an alliance of strong northern Gallic tribes, including the heroic Nervi, and knocked down every other tribe who dared to stand against him. Finally, the eastern and southern Gallic tribes, more Romanized and living closer to Roman territory, were starting to turn. A tribe called the Carnutes threw down the gauntlet, attacking a Roman-allied town called Genaboom. The news of that attack traveled like wildfire, passing from neighbor to neighbor in shouts and whispers, until it reached 160 miles south into the territory of a powerful southern Gallic tribe called the Arverni. The Arverni were one of the powerful southern free Gallic tribes that were, at that moment, kind of allied with Rome. But they hadn't always been allies, they had tangled with Rome before. In 121 BC, 63 years before Julius Caesar invaded, the Arverni had fought the Romans and lost. This was when Rome had captured that southern strip of land, Transalpine Gaul, that ran along the bottom of what's now France, connecting northern Italy with the Roman provinces in modern-day Spain. When the Romans conquered Transalpine Gaul, they conquered a lot of formerly free Gallic tribes and made their territory Roman provinces. But the Arverni managed to negotiate a treaty and keep their independence. Even so, they suffered a significant decline in power. The Arverni might not have lost their freedom after they lost to Rome, but it must have left them with significant cultural trauma. Possibly the experience was as traumatic for this tribe as the first sack of Rome had been for the Romans, because they picked up another trait the Romans would understand well, an aversion to kings. Where have we seen that before? Yeah, we talked about that in the uh, first Julius Caesar episode we did, Julius Caesar and the Pirate's Ransom, about why the Romans might have had this aversion to kings. There's not a lot we know about that except for what they tell us in their own sort of founding myths, but we talk about it in more depth. Anyway, instead an oligarchy or small group of nobles took control. They were probably ruled over by one single chieftain, but with checks on that chieftain's power. And sometime before 52 BC, we're not sure exactly when, the dates are fuzzy, but it was probably after Caesar's invasion, the Arverni did something a lot of other Gallic tribes have been doing. They killed their own leader, Celtillus, possibly for trying to unite the tribes to fight against the Romans. So remember, a lot of these Gallic tribes had seen Caesar defeat an alliance of the strongest Gallic tribes to the north and take tens of thousands of people into slavery at one time, Caesar was not fucking around and not everybody wanted to risk a confrontation with him. I mean, you could just imagine the southern Gallic tribes looking at what Caesar was doing and going like, fuck no, I'm not getting involved with that bullshit to the north. Fuck no. Yeah, and also like, this isn't Star Trek mentality. Like, not every Gallic tribe wore a red shirt, wore a blue shirt or orange shirt or I don't know, pick your color pajama shirt. I think what you're trying to say is it wasn't a cultural hegemony, like where they all wore the same outfit and did the same things and were basically the same people. Like they were Gallic and that involved certain cultural signifiers, which we talk about in the archaeology episode, but they didn't consider themselves a united whole. Exactly. And it was possible that some of the tribes that Caesar was picking on were ancestral enemies of other tribes in the South. I mean, we don't know. And so, yeah, they'd be like, okay, well, you can get rid of our enemy for us. That's totally cool. Get on with it. I mean, it's kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. If you look at the Hound of Ulster, it's Ulster against Connaught. You know, if Caesar showed up in ancient Ireland and was like, yeah, I'll side with the Ulster people against Connaught, they'd probably say yes to that. Yeah. I just think that it's really important to know that. And it kind of gives you a little bit of understanding as to why they didn't all rise up sooner or they didn't really realize what Caesar was doing or that Caesar just considered them all one people and was going to do to one what he did to the other because they didn't see themselves that way. So they didn't think he would see them that way. There were basically connections and feuds and and friendships and relationships between these tribes that went back centuries. So Caesar was really the newcomer there, and all these tribes did not see each other as as the same in a group. You know, they saw themselves as separate, like different tribes who had allegiances to their tribe and not to some kind of whole. Anyway, in 52 BC, Celtillus was assassinated and his son Vercingetorix became chieftain. Vercingetorix had been about 24 when Caesar first invaded Gaul. By the time he became chieftain of the Arverni, he was probably around 30. And at this point, Caesar had been beating up the tribes in northern Gaul, slaughtering whole cities, selling entire communities into slavery, torching sacred groves, and pillaging shrines and towns for six years. But right now, he was looking the other way, turning his attention back to Rome to deal with some chaos down there. And while that was happening, a Gallic tribe called the Carnutes had struck a decisive blow, seizing a Roman allied town called Genaboom and slaughtering all the Romans living there. When Vercingetorix heard what happened in Genaboom, he was ready. He immediately began 
rallying his people to join the cause. But his nobles rebelled against him. They had just killed his father for doing the exact same thing, and his own uncle expelled him from his city and his tribe. But here's the thing. There were now a lot of dispossessed warriors wandering around Gaul, survivors of Caesar's battles who'd seen everyone they loved slaughtered or sold into slavery, and who had no homes to return to. Caesar called them outcasts and vagrants, but I call them refugees, still strong and with plenty of reason to fight. Vercingetorix set about finding these people and rallying them to him. With the strength of an unknown number of dispossessed Gallic warriors at his back, he turned back on the Arverni and drove out his uncle and the other nobles. Then he immediately sent messages to the four corners of Gaul. Those messages said one thing. The revolution was on. Not long after, by unanimous consent, Vercingetorix was declared king of the Gauls. Incidentally, that name Vercingetorix, probably not the name he was born with. It's one of those name titles like Alaric. It means something like great warrior king, and possibly the warrior in that title is specifically tied to the infantry. We have no idea what name he was born with. Maybe it was Kevin. Kevin just doesn't have the same ring as Vercingetorix. Sorry, all the Kevins out there. We're being jerks. So anyway, I can't emphasize how big of an achievement this was, how quickly Vercingetorix united the Gauls. Yeah, and we just got done telling you guys about how the Gauls were all disparate tribes and they did not did not play nice together and they weren't going to unite behind a single leader and then Vercingetorix steps up onto the scene and was like hold my fucking beer guys. Right. He's like hold my fucking beer. We've seen how significant the barriers were that kept the Gauls from uniting behind a common leader. For one thing the warrior culture which encouraged intertribal warfare. The divided loyalties that Caesar had been very good at exploiting and for another thing the atrocities visited on tribes who fought the Romans and lost. I mean I just feel like this happened so fast right Jen? Like Vercingetorix just turned around and sent a bunch of messages out and all of a sudden everyone's declaring him king. The fact that this happened so fast must have meant that Vercingetorix must have had immense personal charisma, possibly enough to rival Caesar. I mean, Jenny, when you meet characters like this in history, you love to think of them as like heroes in a romance novel. But I don't know that Vercingetorix would work this way. It's tempting, right? Like, I definitely feel that with him. The thing about Vercingetorix is that there is not much of a save the kitten factor with him, but he was probably the first person among the southern, more Romanized Gallic tribes who saw what was going on with clear eyes. He'd seen Caesar slaughter whole towns, wipe tribes off the map. He knew that if the Romans took control, it meant the death of his culture, the proud, chariot-fighting, single-combating, hero-portioning, oak-grove-worshipping, head-taking, poet-warrior society of free Gaul. Salmon leap! The salmon leap! <laughs> we can laugh about it, but it's true. To Vercingetorix, Caesar was the apocalypse, and to stave off the apocalypse, he was willing to do anything to anybody. And this is, of course, according to Caesar. We're going to keep reminding you of this over and over again because we are looking at this history of a conquered people from the point of view of the conqueror. When we were talking about this, when we were rehearsing this, because believe it or not, we rehearse these episodes. You wouldn't believe it to, you know, hear it. You know, the part that really struck me about this is would it be worth, you know, the victory that Vercingetorix is trying to achieve? Would it be worth doing anything to anyone if you had to become just as bad as the Romans to beat them? Who knows? knows how we would answer that question because it's kind of an extreme situation that we've never been in. It's just like armchair quarterbacking Vercingetorix's decisions after the fact is a little bit unfair. It's totally unfair, but I do think like as we go on through the story, Vercingetorix has to become just as ruthless as Caesar in a lot of ways in order to keep his people alive. As we go through, you know, we've we've asked ourselves as we've gone through this story, what would you what would I do? What would you do? And it's I wouldn't say it's a fun exercise. I wouldn't say it's a fun exercise. What it is is it's an exercise in empathy. And it's an exercise in really understanding the line that Vercingetorix had to walk down in order to give his people a chance. Not a guaranteed victory, a chance. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. 
So Vercingetorix immediately started imposing discipline, paying rigorous attention to the formation and equipping of his army, especially the cavalry. And according to Caesar, he punished disobedience severely. Quote, on the commission of a greater crime, he puts the perpetrators to death by fire and every sort of tortures. For a slighter cause, he sends home the offenders with their ears cut off or one of their eyes put out, that they may be an example to the rest. Though again, this is Caesar, get your salt licks out. What he was trying to do here was impose discipline like the Romans and make an army out of disparate tribes, you know, like make sure everyone's loyalty was to him and to a united Gaul. Because if you still thought you were loyal to Genaboom or your old town or your old tribe, whatever, you've got another thing coming. You have to be loyal to him now. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. Vercingetorix's first move was to attack the cities and hometowns of tribes that were loyal to Caesar. The plan was several fold. One, to thin out Caesar's resources, forcing him to rush home and defend his allies. And two, to terrorize those allies into switching sides. Because if the allied tribes saw that Caesar couldn't protect them, more of them would turn to Vercingetorix out of fear, if not conviction and belief in his cause. Vercingetorix wanted to send a message to the other Gallic tribes that being on the Roman side had consequences. As word traveled, more and more tribes joined him, some willingly, some under threat of violence. A trickle of allies coming into Vercingetorix's camp turned into a fire hose. When Caesar got wind of the uprising, he was in Cisalpine Gaul. And just so you know about the geography here, we have talked a lot about Cis and Transalpine Gaul. Cisalpine Gaul was a Roman province where Gallic people lived in northern Italy around the Alps, and it's sort of the place where the Italian boot bells out as it connects to the rest of Europe. Transalpine Gaul was a strip of land that ran along the south of France, connecting Cisalpine Gaul with Spain. Anyway, Cisalpine Gaul was practically in Italy. I think actually parts of it were in what we consider Italy today. That's where Caesar was at the moment. And that was a problem. Hundreds of miles separated him from his army in free Gaul, and it had just become enemy territory. Caesar had two options, order his army to come to him or try to go to his army. Option one was a bad idea because if the army marched, it would most likely encounter Vercingetorix and have to do battle without its commander. Chances were high it would get wiped off the map. Option two was even worse. Crossing hundreds of miles with just a small escort, completely vulnerable, threading a minefield of enemy tribes. Even among the friendly ones, alliances were shifting at lightning speed and nobody could be trusted. All of the tribes had good reason to take Caesar's head to Vercingetorix on a plate. Because headhunting, that was a thing. It was in their culture. Caesar chose option two, thread the needle and travel to his army in secret at night through enemy territory because he was Julius fucking Caesar. Julius fucking Caesar. This is totally a thing that bastard would do. It is. I mean, I feel like every time I'm saying it, I'm not aggrandizing it by being very sarcastic. Shen is bringing the snark here. (laughs) Caesar wasn't completely alone. He had some troops with him, mostly noobs he just raised in Cisalpine Gaul. Vercingetorix was out in the field right now, hundreds of miles away, beating up on Rome-friendly tribes to encourage them to change sides. Because, you know, that's always worked with me. I mean, it's the carrot and stick, Jen, except mostly stick. Terrible plan. I don't think it was a terrible plan. I think it was working. I think it was totally working, but I think like looking at it, it's like, oh yeah, that's exactly how I'm going to change my mind about something I feel. Just, I mean, it's just like, you'll just be like, fine, Vercingetorix, I'll just do what you say. Just please stop beating up on me. I don't respond to bullies on either side, but sure. But the Arverni territory, Vercingetorix's hometown, was not that far from Cisalpine Gaul, the part of the Alps where Caesar just so happened to be. Tit for tat, Vercingetorix, you attack Caesar's allies, Caesar will hit you where you live. Between the Arverni and Caesar stood a mountain range made impassable by snow at this time of year. With the mountain at their backs, the Arverni thought they were reasonably safe from Roman attack. They were wrong. Caesar's noobs had a tough break-in period. Caesar marched them through brutal winter passes, clearing snowdrifts six feet deep to come at the Arverni from behind. It was a Herculean task. Once there, he sent his cavalry to ride as far into Arverni territory as they could, destroying homes, slaughtering civilians, and burning fields. As Caesar planned, word traveled fast to Vercingetorix about 100 miles north, and Vercingetorix was forced to turn around and rush back to protect his people. Caesar left his troops to keep harrying the Averni, left his subordinate in charge, and told that guy he had to go raise more troops, but he'd be back in three days. But that was a fake-out. With Vercingetorix's attention focused on his homeland, Caesar galloped with a small retinue 53 kilometers northwest to Vienne, where he had a garrison. He took his own soldiers completely by surprise, he kept his coming as secret as possible, and quickly assembled a new group of cavalry. 
Then, marching night and day, Caesar traveled through Adri and other tribal territories, where he had two legions camped in winter quarters. These were until very recently friendly tribes, but nothing was certain now, and this was a desperate ride, during which he may have disguised himself as a Gaul. I mean, he would have just a giant fake mustache and everything. Oh, that's kind of fun. <laughs> that is kind of fun, right? Yeah, Julius Caesar disguised with a fake mustache. Yes, we know it's mustache. We're just going to call it mustache. The official ancient history fangirl pronunciation is mustache. Absolutely. But against all odds, Caesar made it to the garrison safely. And once there, he immediately sent messengers to the rest of his army, ordering them to congregate in one place near modern-day Sens, where Vercingetorix's army had been active. Before word of his movements could reach Vercingetorix, which was tough to do because, you know, there were spies everywhere, it took a few days for Vercingetorix to realize that Caesar's attack on the Arverni homeland was only a distraction. Once he figured it out, he immediately headed back north. And we cannot emphasize how big the stakes were for both of these people. On the line for Caesar, his political career, his aristocratic name, everything he owned, and maybe even his life and freedom. Theoretically, Caesar could wind up tried for crimes against the state when he got home because his consulship had been very eventful. There were people back there who were calling for this already. That kind of makes me just feel like, so that means he probably committed crimes against the state. Well, he did. I mean, I don't think that it's actually even a question. If you listen to Julius Caesar and the Devil's Three-Way, we talk about the violence that was happening during Caesar's consulship and the fact that he had allied with Crassus and Pompey and he had like Pompey's soldiers basically strong-arming people and flooding the Senate with angry mobs and stuff. There was a lot of violence and there was a lot of messed up stuff going on. <laughs> so he might have deserved it, really. I mean, I'm not going to say that you're wrong. But the thing is, to him, I'm sure it was justified. He probably had lengthy justifications for all the things he did. I'm sure it's in his memoirs somewhere. The Lost Book. Oh, you mean the commentaries? Because <laughs> 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 that's not Lost. That We have that. Oh, do we? Sorry. I clearly didn't do the research for this episode. <laughs> you clearly have not listened to me talking about the commentaries on and on and on and on ad nauseum. And read my script at all. Why would I read my script? Anyway, so yeah, Caesar's looking south and seeing the crap that's going on in Rome right now. He's seeing people getting exiled. He's seeing back in the Catiline conspiracy, people being strangled without due process down in the horrible hole. And it's entirely possible that if he didn't have a safe political landing, you know, like a position like consulship that would keep him immune from prosecution and having to pay his debts off, he could see himself arrested. He could see himself tried for crimes he committed during his consulship, maybe exiled, maybe even executed. A lot of bad things could happen, basically, if Caesar got this wrong in Gaul. We're not saying all this because we want to justify what Caesar did, because clearly that's not the case. We do not. We're not Caesar apologists. Caesar was a dill hole. Yeah, absolutely. But we want to clarify the motivations of the two players here. A lot of the time when people tell this story, Caesar is described as being driven by his all-consuming ambition. And that's not untrue. But also, it's not just like he could go home to Rome if he lost to this battle. Like, this was his Hail Mary pass. If he did not win here, he was in really big trouble. I mean, the kind of trouble you can't come home from. But no matter Caesar's reasons, which I'm sure were very convincing to him, Vercingetorix clearly had the right of way here because for him, the stakes were no less than his world, his culture, his tribe, and the lives and freedom of everyone he knew. There was no question. To Vercingetorix, Caesar was the coming apocalypse. Vercingetorix's next move was to attack a town of the Boai tribe, a subsidiary of the Adri that was loyal to Rome, and burn it to the ground. Tit for tat, Caesar. You attack Vercingetorix's family and he'll set your friends on fire. Versin fucking Getorix. Caesar wasn't prepared to face Vercingetorix's army directly. He'd had no time to gather rations or pack animals, and he didn't have the supplies to stay long in the field. But if he didn't respond to this attack, he'd send a message to other Roman allies that he wasn't strong enough to defend them, and they'd be forced forced to join Vercingetorix's rebellion for their own safety. There was no option of neutrality here. He had to put on a show of strength. So Caesar marched. Along the way, he besieged a town called Velnodunum, stripping the town to the studs for much-needed supplies. A few days later, he arrived at Geneboom, the town the Carnutes had taken, slaughtering the Roman townsfolk and sparking the rebellion. It used to be a Roman town, but now it was a rebel town. Caesar got there late in the night and decided to plan a siege for the next morning. Before dawn, Caesar got word that almost the entire population of Geneboom was trying to flee over a single bridge across a river. But in the congestion and panic, few were actually getting across. Caesar sent his legions into the town, burned Geneboom to the ground, and took the entire population into slavery. 
At this point, it must have sucked to be a regular person in this part of Gaul, just trying to go about your life. Nowhere was safe. No one was safe. If Caesar didn't get you, Vercingetorix would. You could join up with either one of these, but that would not guarantee your safety. Caesar might take your kids hostage, strip your town for supplies, leaving you to starve, and maybe sell you into slavery depending on his mood. And Vercingetorix wasn't exactly a safe harbor either. You'll see why. One example of the conundrum faced by civilians is what happened in the town of Novio Dunum. And this was not allied to Rome, and Caesar attacked it, trying to provoke Vercingetorix into an upfront confrontation. But the people of Novio Dunum did not want a fight. They surrendered to Caesar immediately to protect the inhabitants from slaughter. But then Vercingetorix showed up, and his presence inspired the town to take back their surrender. They started putting up a fight, but when Vercingetorix's cavalry clashed with Caesar's, it was Caesar's troops who won. The people of Noviodunum, who had whiplash by this point, and literally just wanted to live, took back their takebacks, and again surrendered to the Romans. No word on what happened to them after that, it probably depended on how Caesar felt about them. It's possible they were sold into slavery, since they'd taken back their surrender and couldn't be trusted, but it's also possible Caesar didn't sell them into slavery because that might discourage other cities from surrendering. Either way, you can see the impossible situations ordinary people were put in as these two huge armies used them as chess pieces. After the siege of Novio Dunum, Caesar marshaled his troops and marched toward Veracum, the most well-defended town in the area. If he took that town, he took the whole region. Vercingetorix had now faced Caesar's troops in open battle, and it hadn't gone well. Why? Let's delve into that for a second. We're not 100% sure how many men Vercingetorix and Caesar had, but I've seen estimates of as many as 250,000 troops on the Gallic side at certain times and only 80,000 on Caesar's. I don't know if these numbers are you know, correct, and it depends on when we're talking about during the Gallic Wars, and it involves doing a lot of math, and I'm not a math person, so don't ask me to show my work here. But if it's true that Vercingetorix outnumbered Caesar, why didn't the Gallic troops do better against the Romans? One reason why may have had to do with culture. The Latin culture, which was what Caesar was encountering in Gaul, was centered around its warrior elite. The high-ranking men spent lots of time training with their weapons. It was crucial to be able to defend your lands against raiders and conduct raids yourself for land and status. However, the Gauls also had to farm and tend their cattle, and they didn't have a professional army devoted 100% to war as the Romans did. They also weren't as cohesive as the Romans, and we saw this in the last episode. The Gallic tribes were difficult to unite, and once united, even under a strong leader like Vercingetorix, it was like herding cats. Jenny is a cat named Heloise, and good luck trying to herd that one. I mean, we couldn't even get her to do a proper salmon leap, and she likes leaping! She's really good at the salmon leap, but it was hard to get her to do one executing the proper form. We did get a few decent shots. I'm sure they're up in our Instagram by now. This is all to say that the Gauls weren't used to working together. Each tribe had centuries of history and feuds between each other. And even among the warriors within a tribe, there was a lot of competition for status. The emphasis was more on individual glory than teamwork. And that meant that in battle, often the Roman side was better coordinated. And of course, the Gauls are not a monolith. This is just general trends here. Some of it we're getting from Mediterranean writers who were not Gallic. So you do have to take this with a grain of salt. Yeah, get out your salt lick, guys, whenever you listen to us. Lick some salt as you listen to everything. Although, counterpoint, look at the Hound of Ulster. You know, that's totally what the culture was like. It was all about individual bravery and specific heroes and salmon leaps and what feats everybody could do individually. And if you read those stories, you do see even different warriors within a specific tribe constantly competing for status. So I'm not convinced that that wasn't a thing either. No, and I mean, you also see it in Greek mythology. Like, you see it in the Iliad. All of the warriors are striving to be the best of the Greeks. And on one day, well, most of the days it's Achilles, but after he dies, there's all these other people jockeying for that position. It's not just the Gauls. It's a more ancient way of organizing your warrior culture, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Especially when your hero or your best of the best is so integral to the support of the army and to the morale of the army, I think. So while the Gauls valued individual courage, the Romans valued teamwork. And this is very, very different. Roman legionaries served for about 25 years. And during that time, they were not allowed to marry or have children. The smallest unit was a contubernium, a group of eight men who slept, ate, fought, trained, and died together. They were rewarded together for each other's courage and punished together for each other's screw-ups. Oh, Jenny, this sounds awful. <laughs> this is this is everything I'm afraid of. <laughs> what, being punished for my screw-ups? <laughs> or you being punished for my screw-ups? <laughs> right, we just cannot screw up, Jen. 
It's win or die. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure at all. The culture of the Roman army was meant to erase individual bravery and foster collective reliance. What that meant in battle was that the Roman legionaries fought together like a well-oiled machine. They were organized and highly disciplined. They were more capable of working as a unit while executing complex maneuvers. You see that discipline win out over and over when the Romans take on less cohesive tribal groups. Another reason the Gauls were at a disadvantage had to do with arms and armor. The Gauls at this time wielded large, heavy broadswords with a sharp edge but a more rounded point. These were designed to hack at your opponent with big, heavy downward blows rather than making direct thrusts. The problem with this design is that it works a lot better in a loose formation, with the soldiers in both armies standing kind of far apart. This formation also allows for each Gallic warrior to pull out his flashy warrior feats and stand out on the battlefield. But the Romans were fighting with the gladius, a short, light sword, pointy at the end, built for thrusting and stabbing. This was like, the gladius is very stabby. It's a stabby sword. They did not care about feats. They did not care about standing out. In fact, if you broke ranks and ran out ahead of your legion when you hadn't been ordered to, I think that was a punishable offense. I mean, they just cared about getting the job done and going home. Right. To their eight-person tent. The gladius was an ideal close-quarters weapon, and the Romans fought closely packed. They were trained to avoid wild swinging blows at all costs, because the bigger your stroke, the more you leave your defenses open. I mean, that's very true. You have to be, like, pretty confident to have a massive stroke, don't you? I guess so, yeah. Well, think about it. You're leaving so much of your body exposed. You gotta keep things close to the vest. Otherwise, you might get stabbed by the stabby sword. Some Gauls had chainmail. In fact, the Celts are believed to have invented chainmail. The oldest chainmail armor dates from around 400 BC and was found in a Celtic Latin-style grave in modern-day Romania. But not all Gauls were so richly equipped. Each Gaul, unlike the Romans, had to supply his own arms and armor. The wealthy elite would have high quality gear, but the less wealthy people most likely wouldn't. There was no standard equipment. In the Roman army, by contrast, everyone got standard issue weapons and armor of the same, usually high quality. I mean, that is the good thing when you have a standing army, isn't it? Everyone gets their own armor, and it's the same kind of armor all around. The interesting thing here is you can see Vercingetorix trying to counter all this when he first built up his army. One of the first things he does is pay really close attention to how the army was equipped, especially his cavalry. He was probably trying to impose some of the rigorous standards the Romans applied to everyone having the same armor. And when Caesar tells us that Vercingetorix imposed really fierce discipline, even though you do have to remember who's telling us that detail, I actually find it pretty believable because Vercingetorix's discipline had to be harder. His warriors hadn't already been indoctrinated into this ethos of teamwork and obedience. He understood these cultural differences in his people and how they worked against him, and he was trying to impose a framework of discipline over centuries of independence and feuding between tribes, so he had to be strict. He had to put the fear in them. But there was only so much he could do in the time he had. The Romans had hundreds of years to build this into their army and into their culture. This is the way we succeed. It's the complete opposite of the Gallic culture. So you've got these two very different armies clashing who view the world incredibly differently. Caesar gets really specific about how Roman weaponry worked against the Gauls. His soldiers carried a pilum, a light javelin designed to bend on impact with the enemy, so the enemy couldn't pick it back up and throw it back in your face. Although this did not stop the Nervi, long live the Nervi. And you see that working to great effect when Caesar fights the Gauls. When he fights against the Helvetii way back in the beginning of his invasion of Gaul in 50 BC, he describes his soldiers' pilums getting stuck in the Gauls' big shield. They had these big wooden shields, which hindered the Gauls' fighting and forced them to toss away their shields and fight without this protection. And one more thing, the cavalry. The Gauls had a reputation as some of the best horse people in the world, not including the Scythians, of course. If you want to learn more about them, go listen to our Amazon series. The Women Warriors of the Ancient Steppe, I think, is where we really deep dive into the Scythians, and that's a really cool episode. But the thing is, the Gallic horses weren't that big. They were more like ponies. Yay, fat little ponies. That means that they were more suitable as skirmishers, engaged in more sporadic, harassing combat, rather than acting as the core of an army. And that's exactly how you see Vercingetorix using them. Because the Romans had big horses, didn't they? They did. They had bigger horses than that, at least. I don't know exactly what the breed was. That would actually be an interesting deep dive. Yeah, maybe on our Patreon. Yeah, maybe we'll do a deep dive into the breeds of Roman horses for the cavalry. So there were several reasons why Vercingetorix was at a disadvantage against the Romans. To defeat Caesar, he had to be smarter, quicker, and harder to catch. And he had to do what in Roman army slang they used to call kicking the enemy in the stomach. Vercingetorix gathered his tribal leaders together and laid out his strategy. Rather than risking an open confrontation, they basically pulled 
Gaul a Cuchulain. They'd wage a guerrilla war, harassing the Roman supply lines, picking them off in small groups when they ventured out to forage, and never letting them sleep or eat or know a moment's peace. But Vercingetorix also took things a step farther than Cuchulain by not leaving anything for the Romans to plunder. You mean kicking them in the stomach was just making sure that they didn't have enough food and that they starved? Yes, that is what it means. Oh man, I wouldn't like that. You're not supposed to like it, Jen. Vercingetorix <laughs> <laughs> had seen the Romans get their supplies by pillaging Gallic towns. He told his people that the only way they could win was by burning everything to the ground. Their own villages, towns, houses, and fields. And this would starve the Romans, force them to range far afield to forage, making them more vulnerable to attack. He told his people, quote, If these sacrifices should appear heavy or galling, that they ought to consider it much more distressing that their wives and children should be dragged off to slavery and themselves slain, the evils which must necessarily befall the conquered. In other words, to get out of this alive, everything they loved had to burn. And his people unanimously agreed, which again is just astounding. And not only because leading the Gauls was like herding cats or sharks or me and Jen, any kind of being that just does not naturally herd. Assuming they could drive the Romans out at all, what would they live on afterwards? There was a very real risk of starvation if they burned everything in every direction. Again, the fact that everyone agreed to this speaks to the towering charisma Vercingetorix must have possessed. But his chieftains begged for one exception, Avaricum. And remember, Avaricum is right in Caesar's path right now at this moment. Caesar's marching towards it. Avaricum was the most important city in the Paturgis territory around Bourges in modern-day France. It had a population of about 40,000 people, and it was a mining town. There were important iron mines in the area, and metalworking was one of Gaul's superpowers. So this would have been an important source of metal for Gallic weapons production, and also shiny, shiny jewelry. We talked about it in our archaeology episode, but the Gauls were the first people to, like, make plated jewelry, and I love the idea that, like, they were this very status-conscious society, and they sort of made it so that everyone could could have things like it didn't have to be all just the wealthy having it like you could have a little bit of gold plate somewhere how amazing would that be you still have to be pretty wealthy i guess but not as wealthy yeah it wasn't all solid gold Avericum was located on a steep hill surrounded by a river and marsh with only one narrow entrance and it was well fortified. Vercingetorix didn't think it was strong enough to withstand a Roman siege and thought protecting it would be a needless waste of resources. His initial strategy was just like, listen, Caesar's already marching there. If we burn it to the ground, he's going to have nothing to take. And then he won't have any supplies and he'll be stuck deeper in our territory with no supplies. So he wanted to destroy Avaricum. Yeah, and that was not a bad idea. But the Baturgis threw themselves at Vercingetorix's feet, begging that they not be forced to, quote, set fire with their own hands to the fairest city of Gaul. And against his better judgment, Vercingetorix agreed to help the Baturgis protect their town. Caesar showed up at the walls of Avaricum and immediately began building siege engines and a giant ramp to wheel those siege engines up to the city walls, which, remember, were high on a steep hill. Vercingetorix camped about 15 miles away, shadowing Caesar closely. He basically had one job here, slow the Romans down, starve them. He knew he couldn't defeat the full Roman army in open battle, but he could stop them from eating. He watched the Romans carefully and cut to pieces any foraging parties that wandered too far. The Romans had to be very careful when venturing outside camp, going at a regular hours and a different way each time. This severely limited the Romans' foraging abilities, which meant Caesar had to wrap this up fast. Under the watchful eye of the Gallic forces, Caesar began to erect siege towers. Meanwhile, he sent messages to his allies, the Aedui, for supplies, but the Aedui were tapped out themselves. Starving at this point, the Roman army subsisted only on a few cattle driven in from the villages nearby. Caesar could have had a mutiny on his hands, but he was careful to encourage his troops, visiting each legion as it worked. He told them if they couldn't hack it, if they were suffering too much, he'd give up on this siege. But the legions wouldn't hear of it. They told him they'd consider it an absolute disgrace to abandon the siege after it was started and declared their willingness to put up with any hardship. Everyone was still trying to prove themselves against that legendary 10th legion, Caesar's favorite legion. Meanwhile, the armies of Vercingetorix were also suffering from hunger because scorched earth tactics bit both ways. Vercingetorix also had to wrap this up fast. He led a group to ambush some Roman foragers, and in response, Caesar moved his army to threaten the entire Gallic camp, forcing Vercingetorix to withdraw. Checkmate. And now Vercingetorix was the one dealing with a possible mutiny. The other chieftains got spooked. They said it looked mighty suspicious that Caesar showed up to threaten their camp right when Vercingetorix left with half their cavalry. Coincidence? I think not, they said. 
And in our last episode, we showed you how Caesar dealt with dissension in the ranks, and this is how Vercingetorix dealt with it. He captured some Roman camp followers from a foraging party. And camp followers, I feel like until I started researching this, I kind of thought that a camp follower was like probably a sex worker who followed the army and just kind of worked in the army. And actually it was, I think, basically anyone who was a non-combatant following the army, like sex workers, yes, but also people like bakers and blacksmiths and people selling supplies to the army and stuff like that. Like there were a lot of people following this army who were not actually combatants. Yeah, because those would be really useful. Like, those roles are incredibly important. Yeah. Anyway, so Vercingetorix captured some of these poor camp followers. He had them tortured and starved and then dressed them up as legionaries and paraded them in front of the chieftains. They'd been coached to tell harrowing stories about the low morale and horrific conditions in the Roman camp and how Caesar's army was on the verge of giving up. This worked. The chieftains were totally convinced. They clashed sword against shield to applaud him as their king, and Vercingetorix's position was restored. And I don't know, if you listen to the first Vercingetorix episode, and you remember how Caesar dealt with dissension in his ranks when his army was about to go and attack Ariovistus, if you compare those two instances, right? Like, Caesar is basically a, a soft touch compared to Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix doesn't have time for this shit. Vercingetorix just didn't have the luxury of being a soft touch. He had to reestablish dominance fast, because they're already they're in the field. He doesn't have time for this crap. Yeah, there was nowhere he could go. Like, this is his homeland. Everything is burning. He doesn't have time for this crap. And Caesar also has the years and years and years and years of training and discipline drilled into his army that Vercingetorix does not have. And while that works for keeping them, like, all together as a unit, it's also easier to remind them of why they are this unit and to play on those loyalties to get through a mutiny in a way that Vercingetorix doesn't have. There are all kinds of ways that the deck is really stacked towards Caesar and against Vercingetorix here. And this is just one of them. Well, he didn't have any time and he didn't have a choice. And also he had a very steep learning curve. He was training a group of people who were used to fighting individual warriors as part of a warrior culture against this massive collective that moved together, worked together and supported each other in ways that the Gallic tribes were not trained to do. There was no room for error and it was a total clash of two different armies and two different cultures. And two different outlooks and ways of seeing war. Yeah. Meanwhile, the defenders of Avericum were engaged in a war of wits against Caesar's siege engineers. The Romans threw up grappling hooks. The Gauls turned them aside with nooses. The Romans built a ramp to bring their siege engines up to the walls. The town's miners dug tunnels to undermine them. Because remember, this was a mining town. Yeah, tunnels were their thing. Exactly. I just love that detail. As high as the Romans built their siege towers, the Gauls increased the height of their walls. The defenders also sent warriors by night and day to harry the Romans and set the siege works on fire because everything needs to be on fire. I'm sensing a theme here and the theme is your shit's on fire. It's all burning. With boiling pitch and heavy stones and sharp stakes, the Gauls prevented the Romans from approaching the walls. Even so, under the menacing eye of Vercingetorix's army and the constant challenge from the defenders, Caesar managed to keep his starving troops focused long enough to raise a ramp 80 feet high and 330 feet wide from the plains to the enemy's walls. And just as it was completed, the Romans realized the ramp was sinking and also it was on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is on fire. The miners had dug a tunnel beneath it and then set fire to the tunnel's supports so that the ground itself would collapse. I mean... That is well done. Boss move. Mm-hmm. Both the Romans and the Gauls acted immediately. The defenders cast pitch and torches and dry wood on the ramp, trying desperately to get it to light, while a Gallic attack squad rushed out to beat off the Roman army. The Romans attacked the Gallic defenders and fought to defend the ramp. The Gauls fought with enormous courage. Even Caesar could not play this down. In his commentaries, he recounts the story of a brave Gallic defender standing outside the city gate, throwing balls of pitch at the ramp. He was shot by a dart and fell dead, and immediately a second man stepped into his place. When he was killed by a crossbow bolt, a third stepped into his place, on and on until the Romans finally repulsed the Gauls. Vercingetorix saw the battle was lost, and he ordered all the warriors in the town to flee in the night and join his army. But he only wanted the warriors. He couldn't afford to have women and children along, taking up valuable resources. The warriors from Avaricum would have to leave their families behind. To get out of this alive, all they loved had to burn. This is why joining Vercingetorix was no guarantee of safety. 
Bersengutterix was very, very willing to sacrifice everything. And to roll with him, you had to do that too. If you were a warrior, that meant leaving behind your whole family, because scorched earth tactics were hard on both sides, and battles were often lost and won by who had more supplies. But when the women of Avarakum got word of this plan, they ran out into the streets and cast themselves, weeping at the feet of their husbands. The resulting noise alerted the Romans, and now all of the Gauls were trapped inside. Caesar took the town quickly, and though he was sometimes relatively merciful to Gallic towns, meaning he sold the inhabitants into slavery rather than slaughtering everyone wholesale because he thought of that as merciful. Yeah, that was his idea of mercy. I don't know that we agree with that. Uh, We definitely don't agree. Yeah. This time, Caesar instructed his men to, quote, reap the harvest of victory proportionate to their exertions. At first, the Gauls planned to keep up the fight, retreating to a wide marketplace inside the town and forming up a wedge to repel the Romans. But as the Roman soldiers crowded thick on their walls, their spirits broke. Most threw away their weapons and ran. Tens of thousands were cut down trying to leave by the narrow gate, and those who made it through were slaughtered by the cavalry. Caesar tells us that, quote, being excited by the massacre at Genaboom and the fatigue of the siege, the Romans spared neither those worn out with years, women, or children. And we can't underestimate the brutality of what happened in Avaricum. We've talked about what happens inside a town when it's being sacked by an invading army in our first episodes, How to Survive a Siege, Part 1 and 2. Roman soldiers were in an environment where human violence was baked in and strongly encouraged. Under strict military discipline, that violence was controlled and channeled in specific directions and towards specific purposes. But inside an enemy town, in narrow streets, where they were no longer under the direct supervision of their officers, that control broke down. And it was very common for soldiers to unleash their frustrations on the vulnerable inhabitants of a town. Remember here that Caesar was not even just looking the other way. He was actively encouraging it, which made it 10 times worse. Absolutely. What would usually happen was that anyone who put up even the slightest resistance would be killed immediately. Women would be sexually assaulted on a widespread level, and the attacking soldiers would steal everything of value in the town. It was a frenzy of terrible violence and larceny. Sometimes women, children, and other non-combatants would be taken into slavery, but not in this case. At Avaricum, Caesar took no slaves. Of the 40,000 people who lived in the town, only about 800 reached Vercingetorix alive. It was a devastating loss, and it gave the Romans a much-needed supply of provisions that the Gauls couldn't afford for them to have, because this war was being won and lost by who had more supplies. But now, it was Vercingetorix's turn to project serene confidence to keep his people loyal. He reassured his people that a single loss, even a devastating one, didn't mean they'd lose the war. He said he was working to unite all of Gaul in an alliance that, quote, not even the whole earth could withstand. And hadn't he said all along defending Avarakum was a mistake? This only proved his sound military judgment. People were starting to say that next time, they'd all better listen to him and stick to the plan. True to his word, Vercingetorix sent messengers to the far corners of Gaul to plead for aid from any who hadn't already joined him, using threat, emotional manipulation, ties of friendship, blackmail, gift baskets, and any other tactic they had. I mean, gift baskets. The good Cheetos if you want to get Jen to join your war. Just FYI. And diet raspberry snapple. That's it. It's all it takes. Me, it's more like the summer sausage and the fancy cheese. (laughs) I mean, such a foodie. We both like Prosecco. That's where we intersect. That is the intersect. First, Ingetorix levied more troops from all his allies, quickly replacing the soldiers he'd lost out of Veracruz. Caesar's next target was Gergovia, Vercingetorix's hometown. His own uncle had expelled him from there when he'd first tried to unite the tribes, but now it had come over to Vercingetorix's side, and it was the center of the resistance, a very strong center. Gergovia was built on a plateau about 1.5 miles long by about a third of a mile wide that stood about 1,200 feet above the surrounding plain. There was only one way up the plateau, and a small group could hold the entrance relatively easily. The rest of the war might hinge on who held Gregovia, so both armies rushed south. Gregovia was about 195 kilometers or 121 miles south of Ivaracum. Along the way, Caesar's troops encountered a river called the Alir. The water was too high and flooded for an army to ford it. Vercingetorix got there first, crossed over, and burned all the bridges in his wake. Caesar came to the river and found all the bridges gone and the river
river swollen by rain. His army began to range along its banks, looking for a safe place to cross. And meanwhile, on the other side, Vercingetorix's army played cat and mouse with Caesar's, mirroring his every movement, stalking him by night and day, and torching every bridge the Romans tried to cross. But Caesar had a plan to outwit Vercingetorix and cross right in front of his face without him realizing it. Caesar camped near a town called Varenne, maybe a little more than halfway to Gregovia. In the night, he sent most of his troops marching south, but arranged to make it look like it was in fact the whole force. Meanwhile, he held a group of two legions back and hid out in the woods. This is a fake out. He's doing another fake out. Vercingetorix immediately took off after Caesar's troops marching south. Meanwhile, Caesar's two legions worked fast, building their own bridge, and this is where the engineering skills of the Roman army came in handy. He then sent for the other half of his army, which booked it back to the bridge before Vercingetorix could catch up. Vercingetorix realized he'd been fooled, not in time to stop Caesar from crossing, but with enough time to get to Gregovia before Caesar did. He gave up the cat and mouse game and force marched his people to Gregovia because everything would now depend on who got there first. When Vercingetorix arrived in the area, he positioned his chieftains on all the hills surrounding the plateau the town was built on. While waiting for Caesar, he maintained strict, fierce discipline. He kept his cavalry and archers drilling, continually testing their mettle, and held war councils every day at dawn. Because... When you have a Caesar problem, you get up early. There's no lying. You have to be up with dawn and ready to roll. Crack of dawn, babe. Get your coffee. No time to waste. When Apollo drives that chariot across the sky with the sun, you gotta be there. When Caesar arrived, he immediately took a peripheral hill, drove off the Gallic garrison there, and fortified it in the night. Then he considered his options. The Gallic hosts were arrayed formidably against him, each tribe occupying a hill, and a frontal assault would be suicide. He might be able to starve the defenders out, but not until his own supply chain was secured, so his own troops didn't starve as well. I mean, it's all about the starving or the fire this time. The uh, sub-theme here is starvation. That supply chain, by the way, was currently way behind. Supply chains were often an army's slowest moving component, and because Caesar had had to rush to Gregovia, his supply chain was now miles behind him. Caesar had set the majority of his Aedui allies to guarding it, keeping a small contingent of Aedui cavalry with him. But unbeknownst to Caesar, Vercingetorix had a plan. He'd been in touch with the Aedui chieftains. He'd been sending them gift baskets, bribes, I don't know, whatever it took to try and get the Aedui to join his side. And it was working. The Aedui chieftains had about 10,000 warriors guarding Caesar's supply chain. And they'd been fighting for Caesar for a long time now. And the chieftains knew they couldn't just order their warriors to suddenly turn on Caesar. The Aedui chieftains had to give them a good reason. Yeah, because up until now, Caesar had been winning. Why would you join the losing side? Yeah, especially if, you know, you're a Gallic tribe, but you don't necessarily believe that these other Gallic tribes are your people. They're just other Gallic tribes. And maybe your enemies. We don't know. Maybe they had a beef with some of these tribes and they're like, why would we join with our enemy? This is our friend. We're helping him do the work that we'd want to do anyway. Right. He's serving our purposes. Which is slightly awful, but you know. This is not an endorsement of this activity, but we're just saying there there were reasons why the Aedui didn't just completely ditch Caesar a really long time ago. And a lot of this is conjecture because we don't know that much about it. Yeah, because we didn't write the history and the only person who did was Caesar. So remember, Caesar had assigned most of the Aedui to guard his supply chain, but he'd kept a small group of the Aedui cavalry with him as he'd raced on to Gregovia, the elite Aedui warriors. About 30 miles from Gregovia, Vercingetorix had the Aedui chieftains gather the rest of their warriors together and give them dire news. Caesar had slaughtered the entire Aedui cavalry that he'd kept with him as punishment for a perceived betrayal. We can imagine that the message was something like this. Caesar has dishonored you. He's dishonored the best of your best, your elite cavalry. He's gutted Aedui culture and power and sent the rest of you to guarding supplies. You're nothing but a bunch of peons to him and your best people are expendable. Were expendable. They were gone. Right, were past tense. Vercingetorix was exploiting the Aedui's cultural pride here. He even had the Aedui chieftains produce captives who claimed to have witnessed this slaughter of the Aedui cavalry, just like Vercingetorix had done at Avaricum to prevent a mutiny. And just like before, it worked. The Aedui warriors were enraged. They attacked the supply chain they were supposed to be guarding, stealing all Caesar's food and supplies. Caesar now had a problem on his hands because without the supply chain, he didn't have anything. He immediately marshaled two-thirds of his army to go and deal with this insurrection. And Caesar sent his Aedui cavalry on ahead to show the rest of the Aedui that they were in fact alive and well. The Aedui cavalry had not been killed. No, they were fine. They were like, dudes, what is this all about? We're alive. It's all good. 
Yeah. Most of the guilty Adri warriors immediately surrendered to Caesar, while the chieftains fled to Vercingetorix's army. But the damage had been done. Vercingetorix had outwitted Caesar into leading a huge chunk of his army out of the theater of battle, and while Caesar was gone, Vercingetorix attacked. Caesar had to book it back, operating on less than three hours of sleep, because when you have a Vercingetorix problem, you don't get much sleep, just like when you have a newborn. A newborn that sets everything on fire. <laughs> Mother of dragons. Vercingetorix is like a baby dragon. Let us count the ways. Vercingetorix, little baby Viserion. It's fine. So Jen and I are operating on three hours of sleep or less because we have a Caesar and Vercingetorix problem with these episodes. Everything is burning. Setting things on fire, not letting us get any sleep. So Caesar managed to hang on to his position by the skin of his teeth and probably some flames because baby dragon. But while he was fighting that battle, the Adri rebelled again. Caesar was now in a bind. His supply chain was torched because dragons. He managed to get the new new Adri Rebellion under control, but they were clearly going to rebel now every time they smelled a weakness. The alliance Caesar had depended on up until now was crumbling. But giving up on Gregovia meant a massive loss of face. Caesar couldn't withdraw. And this was not just about pride. It was about projecting an image of strength to Roman allied tribes. If Caesar withdrew, he sent a message that he didn't have the strength to defend them against Vercingetorix's reprisals. Without that certainty, tribes would defect to Vercingetorix out of simple self-preservation. But Caesar saw an opportunity. He saw that a hill in a strategic location, which used to be crowded with Gallic defenders, was now almost empty. Caesar could use that hill. It was close to the plateau, and some deserters told him that there was a path in the back of it that led all the way up to the town. The deserters also told Caesar that Vercingetorix had been very, very nervous about him taking one of the other hills, one that was key to foraging and supplies, and he'd summoned warriors from this first hill to fortify the second. What's that I smell? Toxic masculinity? I mean, a little bit, but also, it's a trap! Do you smell a trap? I mean, sometimes it's like a a fugue of pheromones and you can just miss the trap. (laughs) I mean, I guess when you're wafting toxic masculinity, you don't smell the trap. And that's why Caesar missed it. (laughs) To get the hill he wanted, Caesar resorted to trickery. Caesar dressed up some of the mule drivers from the baggage train as cavalry, set some of the real cavalry in with them, and sent the whole group out to go and keep up a very loud, very conspicuous eye on what was going on on the second hill. He was making it look like he was sending all of his cavalry to the second hill. But he wasn't, guys. Right. That's why he was dressing up these mule drivers. He wanted to make it look like all his resources were concentrated on that hill when they actually weren't. Meanwhile, he took another legion, had it hide its standards and cover its military insignia, and sent it off toward the first hill, the one with the path up to the town. He sent his men in a trickle, ordering them to wander over there without much sense of purpose, rather than marching in an orderly line. They were kind of just meandering. Right. Like, definitely don't look like you're trying to get to that hill. Look like you're kind of lost. You're picking raspberries. You know, you're having a picnic. Ooh, wild raspberries. Yes, please. Skipping along with your friends, having a nice day. And oh, look at that. Coincidentally, we wound up on the hill. There was still a small contingent of Gauls on that hill. Still, Caesar's men managed to get to the top of it so quickly that one of the tribal kings, surprised in his tent, had to gallop away with his pants half on. No comment on what he was doing in that tent. I mean, whatever it was, it didn't involve pants. It did not. Caesar wanted his soldiers to take the hill, but definitely not to keep going toward the town. They were not ready for a frontal assault. He ordered the signal for retreat or for them to just stay still for a second. But because he was a ways behind, the soldiers didn't hear. And all in a froth over the prospect of an easy victory, they surged up the path right up to the wall of the town. The town was in a panic. According to Caesar, quote, a shout arose in every quarter of the city, and those who were at a distance being alarmed by the sudden tumult fled hastily from the town. These people in this town had all heard what had happened at Avericum, and they did not want to be next. Here's what happened. Quote, married women. I mean, and just this quote, I, you know what? We're going to unpack it in a second, but I'm going to read it to you first. Quote, Married women hurled down clothing and silver from the wall and, bearing their breasts, stretched out their hands to beg the Romans to spare them and not massacre women and children as they had done at Avericum. Some of the women even lowered themselves by hand from the walls and gave themselves to the soldiers. What is happening here? I feel like there's just so much bared bosom when we read about women in vulnerable situations. Like, I don't understand that. 
I don't 100% understand it either. I think there's something with the idea of tearing your clothes, rending your clothes to show how vulnerable and overwrought and upset you are about situations that you see a lot of times in like the mythology and in like the classical like history. I don't know how much was actually real or not real or the only thing I can get from it is like you're like exposing yourself to be like, I'm so vulnerable. I'm so overcome. I'm so weak and defenseless. Please don't kill me. But that doesn't feel right. I wouldn't want to take my clothes off. Wouldn't want to remind them of what they can take if they get in here. Oh, no. I mean, that's my feeling is that it's like waving a red flag in front of a bull, right? If I'm in a sacking situation and the army is coming in and they all want to like sexually assault some people, the last thing I'm going to do is bare my bosom at them. Like this does not make any sense. Like it just doesn't seem like the first thing you would do intuitively. And maybe this is a cultural thing and I'm just not understanding that. But I just sometimes when I read these passages, I'm like, is this some weird wish fulfillment on the part of the writers that he's like writing this like titillating literally thing that will get the reader all excited about? boobs like I'm not really sure if that's what's going on or if this is a thing that really happened maybe maybe it was a universal sign of being like we are defenseless we can't defend ourselves look at our breasts it's possible this is in there because this was something that you did to show submission and surrender, like the tearing and rending of your clothes to like show that you're vulnerable and you're no threat. But also they're giving themselves to the soldiers. Like, I don't understand that either. I don't know, but we do know that every single time that Caesar has come through a town, if you don't surrender immediately, it goes much worse for you. Like, whatever's going to happen if he gets into this town is going to be shitty. There's two ways it can be shitty. It can be shitty and everyone could be dead. It could be shitty and maybe you live through it. It's up to you which path you take. Choose from the array of shitty options in front of you. We're really speaking from a remove of centuries and also a modern lens that it makes it hard to understand what our own behavior would be in really extreme situations like this. So we're kind of not in a place to comment. No, we're not. And I think the confusion that we both have is a very modern confusion about this like bearing of your bosom, which seems to be really, really rife in a lot of classical history and mythology, which we don't get. It's one of those things, I mean, you saw it in The Hound of Ulster in sort of a lighthearted way when all the women were burying their bosom at Cook Cullen to get him to stop warp spasming. Maybe that was what was going on. Like, these soldiers were all in a warp spasm. And maybe they were just like, boobs! What is this? Boobs! Right, it's, it's just a way to distract them from further destruction or a way to self-sacrifice to maybe save other people in the town, like your kids, for example. Maybe it was a way of throwing yourself at the enemy so that your children and others were able to escape. Yeah. So, back to the story. A way over-eager guy named Lucius Fabius, who'd been heard bragging just that day about not allowing anyone else over the wall ahead of him, got three men from his company to raise him up over the wall. He then turned around and started pulling soldiers up behind him. I mean, again, this is what happens when Caesar brags about how great the tent is. Everyone is constantly trying to live up to it. Right. But here's the thing. They'd acted too soon. As enthusiastic as they were, the troops were unevenly deployed, not acting in concert, and exhausted from the events of the past few days. Then, when the Aedui showed up, they freaked out even more, thinking this was a new group of enemy Gauls about to bring the hurt. And I mean, they could be forgiven, because five minutes ago, the Aedui were not on their side. They were not. And now here they show up with their glorious mustaches, and it's like, oh god, they're on that side, and on this side, what do we do? Right, the Gauls within and the Gauls without. Exactly. The aid we were, at this moment, Roman allies. And they were clearly showing the sign of being Gallic warriors allied to Rome, which was wearing asymmetric tunics with the right shoulder bare and maybe some scrunchies and leggings because sometimes we just like to think about how awesome that would be. Because the 80s, for some reason. The 80s were, they were fabulous. They were happening right now, for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> right now, in the BCs. Fashion trends repeat, Jen. I mean, we did see the leggings with the Scythian warrior women, so it's possible. Yeah. But did the Romans notice that the Adri were all 80s fabulous in the prearranged signal? No, because they were panicking like I would be. And when you panic, you miss stuff, which could also be called the story of my life. Suddenly, this had stopped being fun for the Romans. There was fierce hand-to-hand -hand fighting on and around the walls. That guy and his friends, who had been way over-eager, got their throats slit and their lifeless bodies tossed over the wall. Another centurion was hacked to death by an angry crowd of Gauls in front of the gates, in full view of his men, screaming at them to save themselves as he died. It was a blistering defeat for the Romans. Caesar was forced to retreat. And in the wake of this, the Aedui deserted him for good. They went home, burning down the town of Noviodunum in the process, 
Yes. Remember, Novio Dunum was the town that surrendered to Rome, then to Vercingetorix, and then to Rome again, because this was just not their week. Then the Aedui made plans to join Vercingetorix. And I guess join Vercingetorix is the wrong way to put it here. When they quit Caesar, the Aedui imagined themselves as the new leaders of the resistance. They went home to their capital, Bibracti, and then summoned Vercingetorix and his army to them and demanded he tell them his war plan so they could approve it. They then went even further, ordering Vercingetorix to turn over command of his army to them. Vercingetorix sat back and was like, cool, why don't we put it to a vote? Then all the other chieftains in Gaul unanimously voted for Vercingetorix because he was Vercingetorix. Yeah, because obviously that's what's going to happen, you guys. The Aedui, quote, highly indignant at being deprived of the chief command, lament the change of fortune and miss Caesar's indulgence towards them. And... I don't even know what to say to these guys. I mean, I roll. But also think about who's telling the story. Caesar's like, of course they miss the light and shining goodness of Caesar now, don't they? Traitors. It's just a last dig at the Aedui from Caesar's perspective. Yes! <laughs> but like everyone else, the Aedui saw which side of the bread the butter was on, and they fell in line behind Verse and fucking Gatorix and kissed Caesar goodbye. With all of Gaul united behind him, Vercingetorix marshaled his strength and went out to meet his enemy, and he would need the strength of every warrior in Gaul behind him because he was about to face the fight of his life at a town called Elysia, and we will tell you all about that in our next episode. So that's it for this week. Tune in in two weeks for the final installment of our series on the Gallic Wars. Burst and Gutterix, All You Love Must Burn, Part 3, The Reckoning. It's not, it's not The Reckoning. In the meantime, we'll be on social, on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan, or on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And we also have a Patreon. This came up at the beginning of the episode, and it's worth mentioning again, because it's a great way to support the podcast. And there's something in it for you. Shout outs in an episode, a chance to vote on various things, and movie nights. And your help is vastly appreciated, and it helps us keep the podcast going. And we have three patrons to shout out today. They are Jen Paradiso, Graz, and Veronica C.R. Washington Ramos. And we apologize if we have mispronounced any of your names. We do. I'm usually guilty of that. And I'm incredibly sorry. And thank you so much for all your support. It absolutely means the world to us. And it keeps this podcast going. Yeah, and there are other ways to support the podcast as well. You can visit our Ko-Fi account and kick us a few bucks or leave us a nice review and whatever app you listen to us on. We're still building our audience and every little bit helps. We vastly appreciate all of it. And we can't stress enough, all of your reviews really help us in the algorithms and they help other people find us. And if you don't want to leave a review, then tell a friend, tell three friends. We don't mind. Yeah, word of mouth is also really important. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. 